It is the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting or rejecting it. This is a quote often attributed to Aristotle, but there seems to be some disagreement on that. With that, we usher in 2024. Welcome back. So excited to be back behind this mic again after a bit of a break over the fourth quarter and looking forward to all of the amazing conversations we are going to share this year on the Breaking Bias podcast. First up is Matt Navo, and we're talking about education. So strap in and let's get rolling. People hear the message that they want to hear within the first 27 words, nine seconds or three messages. They've, they've made a decision. Welcome to the Breaking Bias Podcast, the show where we explore the stories and experiences of people from all walks of life. We're on a mission to inspire new thoughts and dialogue in an effort to challenge bias and cultivate connections. I'm your host, Heather, and joining the show today is Matt Navo. Matt is the Executive Director of the California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. With a long history of serving in various roles within schools, Matt is dedicated to aligning systems and policies to improve outcomes for all students. Welcome to the show, Matt. It's great to be here, Heather. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. Looking forward to hearing more about your experience in schools because this feels like it's been, I don't know, its it should always be a hot topic, right? It's school. But it feels like it's yes. the, the volume's gotten louder. But before we dig into that, I'd like to have you share a bit more about who you are as a person and really mostly kind of your origin story. So impactful life events, uh, family dynamics that have shaped who you are in your young years. Sure. Sure. That's a, that's a great question to start with and really just a pleasure to be here with you. And um, so I, my mother and father divorced when I was young. I was blessed to be able to have uh, a stepfather who was... Uh, professor, uh, Dr. Cecilia Rosco, professor of California State University, Fresno in education. And at that time, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of knowledge and awareness of, of education and uh, the value it could play. But I quickly found myself as a young uh, student in elementary struggling to read. And I found myself in a situation where it was all hands on deck with my mom doing what she could do as a, as a single mom at that time, trying to help me uh, learn and learn the, the vocabulary and the words and sound out phonetically the words correctly. And um, my teachers were at that time pretty concerned. Um, and I remember, I mean, I don't know how I formulated this, this memory in my mind, but it was a, it was a pivotal moment for my backstory. Uh, a bit. It was um, what I can recall is back in that day. I was in school in the in the seventies and in the eighties, and um, I was in elementary school. And we would go to the library, like a lot of classrooms at that time. And you would get to peruse in the library and pick a book out. And I always was in a different section. You know, I could always found myself in a different section um, than everyone else. And so I would. Quickly picking up on that, I realized I need to, to be someplace else. I need to work. I need to be in another section. But I quickly realized I can't read those books. And I remember the librarian of all things. And I'm not sure, you know, how I, uh, how I connected this at such a young age or why I remember it. But I remember she, she, would, um, she knew I was bringing books that I wasn't able to read. And she would slip in to that, to that book, to the books that I had, 
a book she knew I could read. It was um, an, inc an incredible way to say, I got you, you know, I know what's going on here. And it was also just a, another example of all hands on deck. It was everyone helping me get, um, acquire the skills I needed to acquire to, you know, hopefully be successful and have a, a fulfilling life. And so anyhow, fast forward, I tried to avoid education and found myself quickly realizing that that's, that's kind of what fueled me. I wanted to be able to help young people, especially young people that were struggling, people who, young kids who maybe didn't have the perfect setup in life, um, young people who were school didn't really become uh, natural for, for them. And I found myself uh, quickly involved in special education. So I became, I got my master's in special education, served as a, you know, special education teacher in both mild to moderate to severe. And, uh, and if, soon after that, you know, God willing, he opened up doors and uh, I ended up having a really unique administrative opportunities. And, you know, you get to 2023 and I'm uh, having the luxury and the benefit and the blessing to, to, to lead a statewide organization focused on delivering quali quality, equitable education to every student in California. Wow. So tell me about this. Well, first of all, I love that your librarian did that. I'm curious if you ever um, came to an understanding of what, what that struggle was for yourself. When I hear this a lot, um, I hear I found out later in life that I was dyslexic, which is why I was having trouble. Mm -hmm. and, and I know that everybody has kind of unique and their own challenges. Did you ever identify um, what was kind of your block in this area? I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but where that challenge was coming from for you? Sure. Um, you know, it, it, it quite frankly, they were talking about having me assessed at that time uh, you know back in the 70s if you weren't making progress it was you know student study team wasn't a student study team it was uh my mentor rich smith used to say supersonic transport to special education is what it used to be and uh that's what they were talking about you know the bottom line was it just took me longer you know it just took kids learn at different rates and uh Back then, it was a stand and deliver um, mentality. And often cases, if you were lucky, you sat in groups. Most often, you sat in rows and the teacher delivered learning or the teacher taught. And if you didn't learn, it was there was something wrong with you. And so I, uh, I, it just took me longer to acquire the basic skills necessary. And bless my mom's heart. She, you know, I had a single mother who was willing to, to sacrifice to try and help me. So, you know, then you get to a place where I enter fifth grade and I'm still struggling. And I had a uh, teacher, Shirley Cox, and I remember the football coach walked in and said, where's Matt? Because I was quarterback for the, the, the team. And she says, Matt will not be at football until he learns to read. <laughs> and so that was the end of that. Boy, you talk about motivation for me. Um, it, it just took me longer. And it, it just I just required a different approach. Yeah, and and I love that you had so much support because I think it's it's pretty well known that that not everybody does, and so mm -hmm. just that that patience and that extra support, um, and then when you think you mentioned that you kind of wanted to stay away from education for a little while, do you remember that turning point when when the, when it clicked when you said, "Wait a minute, this is what I want to do," like what what that was? Yeah, yeah, I the 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 natural inclination didn't open naturally for me you know what i was thinking oh this is what i want to do it didn't it didn't open naturally and i had an opportunity to coach um 
my mentor, Rich, asked, you know, would you like to coach? And at that time, I don't know if many teachers remember this, but um, in the early 90s, at least here in California, if you had 124 units um, of liberal studies credit, credits, you could teach. There wasn't a lot of, uh, you know, you could pay, had to pass the CBEST at the time, but you could teach. And that was very young. I was 21 and a half when they called and said, you want to be a fifth grade teacher? I had 124 units. I had gone to summer school and said, sure. You know what? I, 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 I do want to help kids. And it didn't take me very long to realize, okay, this is exactly why I needed to be here. But there was a structure in place that afforded me an opportunity as I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do and trying to push off this idea, well, I don't want to be a teacher. They don't make enough money. They work too hard. I know what they're dealing with. All of a sudden, I found myself, no, this is where I belong. You know, there's a calling and saying in special education, you don't choose special education. Students with disabilities are students with unique abilities. They choose you. It certainly worked that way in my mind. I love that. And and to, to speak to the point of um, the amount, of, the expectation that is put on teachers, this is something that I think of often. And I, you know, full transparency, I'm not in the education system. I don't have my own children that are in the mm -hmm. education system. But I know that there's a lot of children nowadays that I'm hearing through my uh, friends and, and family that are on IEPs, which is the individual education plan, I think. Is that Okay. And so I think about that and I think about that putting more pressure on the, the, the teachers. Now, the students are the forefront, right? That's, that's who we need to be focused on. Do you have thoughts on mm -hmm. a different way than, than doing individual education plans? Or is that really what you feel is necessary to meet the individual students' needs? You know, I, I've come to, when I was a young teacher, it seemed like if a student was struggling, the only way to get them to help was an, an IEP. Uh, now, as I matured and I've watched it, it's, a, it's the last resort. It should be the last resort. You know, when it's, I come from a, um, my former school district was in um, a former school district prior to moving out into some of these other positions for 19 years. And we were one of the lowest performing school districts in the state of California at the time. So in the early, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, this school district was not a, a district on the move. Fast forward today, it's one of the most written about and sought after districts in the country around school transformation. And one of the things that we did was to really evaluate what we were doing for students with disabilities. Why was our percentage for students on IEPs above the state average? The state average at that time was about 10%. We were up there in the 15, 16. And when you look, you see a lot of districts that sit there. They sit above the state averages. And, and, they, they, and the reality is, is that there were many things that we could do for kiddos, for young children, just by uh, organizing our system in a different way so that we worked out of the traditional time-based elements of school and um, performance-based elements of school and really gave kids what they needed, when they needed it, the way they needed it, that we found that uh, when we did that through a robust intervention system and a myriad of other things, that the IEP was not something that actually garnered uh, extra services. The IEP was something that we used when a child truly had and a unique ability that prevented them from learning 
And we needed to have protections in place for that child so that as they went through the learning process and they went through the next grade, they were assured those protections along the way to preserve the ability that they have in such a way that we could promote it and accelerate their ability to be productive uh, lifelong learners and lifelong make a contribution to society. That's where we started to use it. Before that, when you and I were probably in school, it was used as, oh, well, you know, if he needs or she needs extra help, she needs to have an IEP. Our district trans transitioned and transformed when we said, if they need the extra help, they get it. They don't need an IEP. If they need extra support from people, they get it. They, yes, we'll assess them. And if they qualify, yes, we'll, we'll provide it. But that's not the first mode of operation. The first mode of operation is what, how do they learn and what do they need and how can we get it to them? So I think it's the last, um, should be the last resort. And that makes sense. When we talk about this idea of policies, implementing policies mm. to help reform schools, what do you, what do you mean? Or, or maybe let me phrase it this way. Can you share some policy examples and some aspects of schooling that you believe truly need reform that we need to focus on? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really great question, Heather, because right now across the country, we have a real challenge with public education. A lot of it has to do with the way we design policy, the speed at which we design policy, who designs policy, why we design policy for education. So prior to this role, I had an opportunity to serve uh, with WestEd as a co-lead for the National Center for Intensive Improvement. And it, it allowed me to work with 29 states across the country with a partner, Jana Rossborough. And in all of those states, they were all focused around helping schools, low-performing schools improve and developing policy to do so. So tell you what I see as the problem, I'll tell you what I think is the solution. In all of those states, they were focused on fixing schools. That was that was what the modus of operate and, and and naturally common sense tells you well they should be but there is no there is, you can't fix schools you can't fix people you can't fix kids um, you can't fix systems there's no uh, compliance monitoring tool that I've seen in my three decades of education there's no accountability tool that I've seen in my three decades there's no strategic plan that I've seen in my three decades and there's there is nothing that fixes schools all you can do is design policy that helps the system learn to improve. It helps a person learn to improve. It helps a school learn to improve. Uh, it helps a student learn to improve. And the only people that can improve a school are the people in it. And so policy gets de designed by oftentimes what I saw in these other states was the next shiny object, uh, the next um, uh, resume builder for the uh, for the for the uh, publisher of the policy that goes into play as the next fixed thing. And it's not. They were dumping huge amounts of money into these ideas, not not always bad ideas, but they weren't focused on the basic principles around teaching and learning. They didn't help teachers teach and they didn't help students learn. So um, and in California, you know, we have a little bit of that. We have a great uh, state board chair who really is focused on teaching and learning, which I, which is what brought me to this position because I really appreciate that. But what state leaders can do and what we need to think about in policy is rather than trying to fix schools, you've got to invite them into a system that helps them learn to improve. And so you have to develop policy. And I say the basic infrastructure that every school needs to have that everybody is, is not common, it's common sense, but not common practice, is uh, you have to have a robust foundation of collaboration amongst teachers. That means you have to have dedicated time 
not prep time the way you and I might know it. When we think of prep time for teachers, we're thinking of time that teachers have to devote energies to prepare the materials for the next day, to prepare what they need to make. This is collaboration time where teachers are in structured conversations, answering four questions around what students need, starting with the most basic, what do they need to know and be able to do? And when you give um, teachers time and you develop policy that incentivizes that, you can get incredible school transformation because you're that's purely focused on teaching and learning. The state that's doing that right now is Arkansas. A lot of people don't realize what Arkansas is doing. Um, they're in their seventh year of, uh, it's an all hands on deck, full court press on, on putting um, incentives into schools to say, you need to carve out time for teachers to have this conversation around student learning. And they're getting incredible results and they're starting to equalize the education balance there. In fact, um, many of the professionals that are leading that work in Arkansas are from California. And it, it, it just begs the question of why aren't we doing this more? And that, that's not shiny. It's not, it doesn't grab the attention of people. People don't say, well, that's, they should be doing that anyways. Well, okay, in a seven and a half hour day, when a teacher has to prep and you're a high school teacher that has 180 to 240 students coming in every day, where, where would they get that? So unless the district is creating in their system coordinated time for those high school teachers in math to come together and to expand their professional practice in a collaboration setting, they're not going to get it. And states aren't devoting it enough, I would argue, we're not devoting enough time and energy and policy development to, to ensure that that happens. Some of the language you use makes me think you have an understanding of systems thinking. Yeah, I, that's what I, I was uh, director of system transformation for WestEd for three years. When you describe what needs to happen in this collaboration, it's a piece of systems thinking about, um, they call it sh a shared mental model. So essentially, it's getting mm -hmm. on the same page. Because until you're on the same page, you might be stopping the bleed, but a quick fix can oftentimes lead to a bigger issue down the line. And it sounds like that's kind of been your experience in terms of what you've seen is that the quick fixes are not only not working, but they've created more of a mess. Yeah, they, that's exactly it. The quick fixes never work. And I'll give you a case in point of what happens with the quick fixes. Uh, you probably remember, Heather, and some of your listeners might remember uh, under uh, President Bush, we established No Child Left Behind. It was NCLB. It was uh, designed to put in a... a a number of quick fixes in place, but most notably, it created a system across the country by which professionals were going to be measured by the um, uh, successful testing of students. So you, the, the, the profession became measured by a number, uh, by a proficiency score. The value of a teacher and their expertise became uh, measured and the quality of that measured by a proficiency score. The value of a student, everything became proficiency scores and, and metrics and models. And it was designed to say, we're, we're no longer wasting time with education. We're not waiting for them to improve. This is our scores, are, our, our NAEP scores are low. Our, how are we comparing across other, uh, with other students across the world? Is we need an overhaul and they did it. And you know, it doesn't take anybody, uh, you don't have to be a genius to look back and realize what it did. Because what it forced people to do is they moved away from innovation. They moved away from uh, creating a, uh, an environment with a sense of belonging. And they started to play what we would argue and what Simon Sinek argues is a finite game. 
it was based on wins and losses. And if you were a teacher, the last thing you wanted to, to do in your school was be last on the testing uh, ranking. You did not want your students to show up last. And so what it did was that quick fix, the teachers played poker essentially with educational improvement. Well, I'm not going to show you, Heather, if you're my partner, I'm not going to show you everything I do because if you outperform me, I'm on the list. I show up last. So I have these great strategies, but I'm not going to show you all of them. You got to earn that because I'm at the top and I'm not going to have the principal come knocking on my door. And same happened with principals. Principals didn't share, cross share uh, instructional practices to help everyone get better. Um, What they curated, they only showed uh, you know, a couple of cards in that five card deck. And so it, it, it actually, what happens to education when we do that is people start playing a finite game. They start playing wins and losses with the quick fixes. And it's actually counterproductive to kids. It's counterproductive to everything we're trying to create. Policymakers have no choice in a system as complicated as what we're trying to create for students in this country. But to be patient, give educators the time to solve the problems themselves. And oftentimes those who are closest to the work trying to design this, 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 trying to figure it out are removed from those who are trying to solve it. You know, the policymakers often are elected officials, no offense to them. I think they do a wonderful job, but many of them haven't taught for very long if they've taught at all. And yet they're designing, you know, educational practitioner policy. And so I think it's, that's, that's, that's a problem. And until we bring practitioners and policymakers together to, deeply collaborate and problem solve, we're probably not going to get uh, the solutions we're hoping to see. And that's why I'm excited about what's happening in California. I think, you know, we're getting there. Our state board chair and a number of others are trying to make that happen. Well, one interesting thing, and I touched on it earlier, and I feel like what you're sharing now, this, I'm just interested in how this affects it, but the the volume has, feels like it's gotten louder in recent years um, with pushback on more parent involvement. And I'm not trying to put a, you know, my own opinion out here on whether they should be involved or shouldn't be involved. But kind of what you just shared is that people being involved in an education plan that don't have the foundational knowledge of, of how education works. I'm just curious, how does all of the rhetoric that is, and this may not affect you in your school district, but just in general, how does that impact efforts to reform schools and make positive changes? That's a great question. It's huge, right? For our our organization, you know, we work with uh, two entities, the California Department of Ed and the state board. There's three of us in a triangle and the CCEE sits at at one of the bases of that triangle. And in the middle of that is the governor and the Department of Finance. And we work uh, collaboratively to try and figure out how do we help education move. I mean, the legislature in California put $100 million into what's called a community engagement initiative. It's the initiative that involves parents in the decision, involves the families in the community in the decision-making process. So we have what's called a local control accountability plan and allows locals to develop a strategic plan. And what we're asking is that they do that with their families, with their communities, with their students. And I would say, you know, your question is a great one because it's absolutely pivotal. The systems that are created that you and when you and I went to school, and I would argue are still in place are transactional. There's there's a transaction between education and community. So I have three boys and they've grown up in the educational system. And I imagine some of your listeners have to have children. And so an example of that is when uh, 
if you ask a, a district to describe what are the five ways you involve community, families, and parents in, in your school, they're going to give you a, a, a rattle off a quick list of five. And most notably at the top is going to be their back to school nights, their open houses, any kind of performances that they provide, uh, any kind of fundraiser that they might do, um, and any kind of workshops or meetings that they might have uh, that involve those. There, there's not there's not a robust. That, that's pretty transactional. And in a, in a back to school, um, if you ask parents, what did you hear? They're going to hear, I heard what my child needs to have to be able to learn, and I heard what was going to happen if they were were misbehaving. You know, they hear those too. That's transactional. They're coming and they are just receiving information from us, from educators. If we're going to get to the relational, which is what we're trying to do, and what I think I would argue what you're what you're pushing on is, if we're going to get to a, a, a depolarize the political landscape of things, parents are going to have to be involved. And they also often are going to come with uh, polarizing perspectives on things. But at the very least, you know, when you build a, a, a conversation with community, it doesn't mean that everybody gets their way. It's impossible to give every parent what they want. But it does mean that everybody gets an opportunity to make a contribution relationally to that. So it's got to be active. It's got to be an active engagement between the schools. We are set and passive engagement, back to school, open house, fundraisers. There's a passive. Parents come, they receive, they go. How about active? They come and they tell you, how do they, what do they think about your school? What, how do their kids learn? Uh, what do they have at home that enables them to help their students learn? You know, when you create a system where they come and they have a conversation with you, I know that I felt as a parent, I felt as an educator, whenever I had an opportunity, no matter what the decision ended up, at least I know they heard from me. And that's what's happening across the country right now. You know, communities don't feel like they're being heard. And so they're polarizing uh, the superintendent and the boards. And they're saying, you know, you're not listening. And the boards, it's because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a passive transactional engagement that we've created in districts that are models better models they have a relational model parents come they give more than their opinion they give ideas they offer solutions and then the the the, uh, district reacts and the board reacts and the superintendent reacts to try to figure out how do we land on the best collaborative decision making Uh, but right now the polarization that we see is it exists in a much richer way in systems that have transactional relation, you know, transactional communication, I cut, you come and I give to you. It, it got, we've got to move away from that. If we're going to make a dent in this and make it po- make education uh, pliable enough that people want to stay and people want to do this as a career. When we think about that and maybe from your experience, how can communities call people in and for those conversations, as opposed to this, um, kind of adversarial. And, and of course, there's always going to be, like you mentioned, everyone's going to have their own opinion and not everyone's going to win. Having everybody come in, be called in and sharing and participate, how can other communities start to do that? Yeah, I think, you know, there's a great, there's a great story in it and, and it get, it'll get to your point around how I think people do that. And I think most educational systems do it wrong from the get-go. And so I'll tell you the, the reason why I think that back in uh, 2010, you remember when Common Core came in, there were um, Common Core came on the, on the landscape across the country. 
and to try and figure out how do we uh, deal with Common Core. There was a, a quite a bit of resistance from parents at the time, if you remember, around Common Core. And there, I would argue there still is, but it's certainly died down um, a, a bit. But, it, but at the time, they had called uh, 10 to New York, 10 of the uh, superintendents from the largest school districts in the country. These are superintendents who are, you know, versed in well-spoken, uh, not afraid to be speaking in front of people, uh, have a good understanding of education and politics, etc. They called them in and they asked them to, um, they put a group of 100 parents out there and they said, you know, why don't you go out, sell them Common Core. Tell them how Common Core is good for them. And they gave the parents a dial. Uh, this was a research project done by uh, Bain, Stewart Company, and they, they uh, as far as I can remember, and they gave those parents a dial and they, they dialed it down when they didn't like what they heard. And they dialed it up when they liked what they kind of like you would a sitcom, you know, a pilot. Well, virtually every superintendent was dialed down within the first 30 seconds. Parents didn't have that what they were saying uh, didn't resonate with them. There was these are these are exceptional leaders. And so fast forward, here's the learning of, of what came out of it. Uh, number one, people hear the message that they want to hear within the first 27 words, nine seconds or three messages. They've, they've made a decision. So we, we forget that in education when we engage with parents. We don't realize how quickly a parent is making a decision about what they've just heard. We, we try to speak to them and we lose them very quickly. But here's the most important piece that I think underscores the answer to your question. What they found was each time those superintendents came back to the room and they refined their message, and each time they told them to speak from their personal experience, and every time they found a superintendent that had a child or a grandchild in the system, the parents dialed up. So what it was saying to them is the messenger is more important than the message. doesn't matter your competency level. What parents want to hear in times of great stress, when they're having to adjust or take in new information, is not what you know. They want to know who is delivering the message that looks and feels like me. And that's where education, we oftentimes miss the boat. Because when we call a, a group of parents together, who is most often speaking to them? The administrator, the superintendent, the principal. They don't no offense to them. They don't want to hear from you. <laughs> they want to hear from somebody who has kids in the system like theirs going through their experiences, who understands what it is to be a parent. They want them to talk to them about what it is they're grappling with. So I think we could do ourselves a great deal of service across education when we start thinking about who it is that knows and can talk and who it is that's like our community and have them speak to the community, invite them in to have a conversation. And that's when communities, families, students alike, that's when that's when they wanna have a conversation. And that's what uh, in our state, we have the you know local control accountability plans I mentioned, and that requires a community engagement. That requires, that's why the, the state put in $100 million in the community engagement initiative, it requires, but schools don't know how to do that. Uh, and so we're teaching them how to do that. And it starts by uh, our team, uh, led by Stephen Sterling Mitchell, really elevates. It's not him that leads it. He pulls 100 schools. He'll pull 100 schools together. And the first person that speaks will most often be a parent from one of those schools. 
and and he has built a model where he is coordinating and facilitating and the parents are leading because he realizes uh, the value of the messenger and that has galvanized i think you know at least in our experience a greater and broader conversation doesn't mean that political views won't always be there and they're not going to be polarizing at the end of the day i have you and i have belief systems that are going to be tough to penetrate but at the very least i have a, i'm having a conversation with you somebody who thinks like me and wants to know more and that makes me feel like i'm being heard this is uh this is one of those things that i feel like i have i was going to say love hate and i don't think that's appropriate but because i <laughs> i totally believe what you're saying and and i and i listen to your examples and i'm like yeah, if I can relate to somebody, I am going to be so much more eager to continue that conversation. I am going to be so much more willing to garner trust or believe them. And the message is also important too. And not everybody mm -hmm. is, you know, if you're going in for surgery, you want the most brilliant doctor, not the one that's, you know, the most charismatic. So it's like they, they yeah. both matter. But in this situation, I completely hear what you're saying. And I think it's so valid. How does that translate to the kids? Because if we're talking about mm -hmm. teaching and, and being able to receive a message in the speed at which you said, what, three messages, nine seconds, or 21 words? Uh, 27 words, nine seconds, three messages. Okay. Yeah. So is that, that the same the for kids? Study. Same for everybody. Yeah, you and I... Um, so remember the the uh, I agree with you totally. The uh, messenger and the message are equally important in certain circumstances. But in times of stress, when you're when a person's feeling like there's something new and they're trying to understand, what this research was showing was the messenger is more important. Like you want to create a connection with people first, then they'll be open to to cognitively uh, connecting to uh, the broader conversation. For kids, it's the same thing. So basically what it means is that if I get up in front of a room, uh, a classroom full of kids, and I'm going to introduce what we're going to learn today, they have made a decision about whether or not they're in or out in 27 words, nine seconds, or three messages. And so adults, I would argue, are even faster. <laughs> we don't have time. I mean, we go to a, we don't have time. We don't have time. And we're so cynical. Uh, you know, we're, we, we get to a place where just, we, we make a decision based on what the, how, what the person looks like sometimes. I'm not going to listen to this person. But it's, 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 what happens is if I get in front of a group of adults and I'm going to deliver a message, they have made a decision. Also, whether or not they're uh, willing to give me more time. They have dialed down either subconsciously or consciously. They have dialed up or down, whether or not they're in or out on my message. So the, 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 the educators, what we need to understand is, you know, education is incredibly complex. And when it comes to kids, we don't have time to waste to make connections to what we're trying to teach them and how it connects to their real world their real life and what it's going to do for them in their future. If you can't say, I have to, we're going to learn this because it's going to help you now and it's going to help you later. And you can't make that solid connection to kiddos. And you can't do that in, by creating a, a, an environment with a sense of belonging where a child feels like, you know, that's really important because you, you care about me as a young adult or you care about me as a student and you want me to do well. And so this is why we're learning this. If you can't create that 
And that's the, the, the secret sauce, so to speak, for what makes a great teacher, what separates a great teacher from a really, really good teacher. The great teachers, they have the content knowledge, yes, but they can make a connection to kids very quickly between the content they're teaching, why it's important now and why it's important then, and all the while um, communicating a, a sense of care and belonging and and uh, hope that this is really important to you. So, you know, st- stick with me on this. And and I see a separation in, uh, around teachers. And our young teachers are, that's a struggle. You know, the school wasn't like it was when you and I went. I, it wasn't the um, consequences were, were not so great back when you and I went in terms of, um, you know, failing to be an educator. You, you didn't feel like your your failure as an educator was sometimes blasted on social media. Today it is, it can be, you know, parents can be and communities can be fairly insensitive and can take a teacher to task um, socially. And that's what happened during co- um, the COVID. And that's why we're in the situation we're in. Parents got, parents were all of a sudden situated in the classroom because it was all at home. And they realized what, what are we learning and how are we learning this? And didn't give, didn't have much grace for educators who were thrown in one day they were traditional and the next day they were virtual. And there wasn't a lot of grace. And so without that, we've got ourselves in this predicament we're having to work out of public schools are. Yeah, I saw some, I saw some great uh, videos come out of, of teachers and I actually got a lot of much deeper um, respect, not that I didn't have respect before, mm-hmm. but just what they go through and the effort and the passion that goes into that experience. I thought mm-hmm. it's amazing. And and this process, this idea of of understanding that the message and the messenger matter equally and sometimes one more than the other. I feel like that's a really powerful lesson, obviously applicable to what you're doing in work, but also it, it can apply to life in general, anything that we're doing, I feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that. Mm-hmm. That's it's a different way of looking at it that I don't feel like I've done before. So I like that. Mm. What um, What is your organization doing currently? So California Collaborative for Educational Excellence. What What's on the, what's on tap for, for right now? <laughs> so we are, um, a very young organization, you know, uh, when you think of a statewide over organization, we were created in 2013 um, by the state legislature and the governor at that time, Governor Jerry Brown and uh, state board chair, Michael Kirst, uh, created our organization, Practitioners for Practitioners. And we have grown, we have 36 people across the state uh, that are working to support. Uh, we have county offices, some states have uh, uh, regions um, New York has BOCES where they just they kind of conglomerate local schools into groups. And so our charge is really to work with our state partners, county offices included, and state lead agencies to really develop a quality equitable education. So what's on tap is we've done some really interesting things as of late. Uh, right now we're curating, um, uh, we have three buckets of work. We have uh, continuous improvement, that uh, really works. And if anyone's interested, um, Heather, I'll just give them the website right now so that they they have it. But they can go to ccee-ca.org, ccee-ca.org, and they'll see, you know, really what our initiatives are. So we have, you know, 
student success and student-centered approaches that are part of that uh, continuous improvement thread. And within that, uh, we develop and curate uh, uh, initiatives and projects to really help districts um, improve. And so we have what's called an intensive assistance model right now that is one of the most um, intensive coaching models in the state, is the most intensive coaching model in the state, and is one of the most intensive coaching models in the country. This is where teachers uh, next to Arkansas, which we curated this model after, uh, we have practitioners in the field getting 150, 130 to 150 days of elbow-to-elbow coaching in math, literacy, leadership, assessment, um, and collaborative structures. So, I mean, we, it, it's, we're really going outside the lines of the traditional approaches to really partner with agencies to say, okay, how can we get better? Um, at what we do, and we coordinate the entire statewide system of support, which is incredibly complex in California. 10,000 schools, 2,000 LEAs, you know, districts uh, like LA Unified, I don't know how big the districts there are where you are, Heather, but LA Unified is 650,000 students just alone. That's the size of most, you know, their, their board members in LA Unified are elected by more people than most senators in this country. So, I mean, we're dealing with massive district and then we're dealing with a district of three. So it's a, the task of California is no small feat and we are smack dab in the vortex of it, trying to help people figure out how do we do this? We have a very thoughtful um, legislature that is really trying to do this well. Uh, It's from not not lack of effort, but for us, um, we've got uh, we've got 53, 43 roughly right now projects across the state that we're curating. And there's a lot they can find out on the website, all that we're doing. Cool. I'll make sure that that goes in the show notes. Um, As far as the comparison size wise, I think New Hampshire's uh, maybe double that total population. So, Mm. (laughs) I mean, very, very different, (laughs) very different. Um, So. When you think about where you are now and looking back, kind of circling back to where you started in education, how do you feel like that starting point has really emphasized your ability to do the work you do, not only just do it, but do it compassionately? Oh, that's a great question, Heather. Um, so when I started, uh, I would argue uh, – I thought it was about what you know. I thought it was about, you know, how much I knew about my content, my pedagogy, that would make me a great teacher, right? Make me a great educator. The more you knew, the better you were. As I've gotten older, become more mature uh, over these three decades, I wish I could go back because it had very little to do with that. What I didn't know I could learn. You know, what I didn't understand, I could, I had colleagues that could help figure it out for me. You know, education was, at that time was independent contracting. You walked into your classroom, you had your kid, they were your kids, and you had to figure it out. And it wasn't set up real well, so I figured at that point in time, boy, if I don't know my stuff, I'm not going to be a good educator, not going to be able to do the things I need to do. Now, that I've grounded myself, it was really about the skills that I didn't possess at that time at a young age feeling like I needed to know it all, or even in some cases, Heather, feeling like I knew it all, you know, as a young uh, humility, uh, vulnerability, you know, um, understanding that uh, I don't know it all, recognizing that I have biases I can't see, uh, caring, 
how do I create a create a, a caring space for the kids I serve and the adults I serve? You know, those things, those characteristics were, were things that when so, if someone would have told me that when I was 21 and a half, I said, what are you talking about? Caring, humility, vulnerability. I don't, no, I need to know how to teach math. And no, no, at the end of the day, what I, what I really lacked uh, as an educator that would have helped me uh, as I matured was those soft skills that really make you create a, uh, an environment of belonging and compassion and caring. And in the hustle and bustle of the day and trying to do it all on the hamster wheel, those things can get pushed to the side. And in education right now, we need them more than ever. Educators got to have, they got to be, they got to have a sense of humility. They got to be vulnerable right now more than they ever have. Because if they don't, if they're not, if they're not open to the idea that you may not know it all, and they're not open to the idea that you may not have the right solution, uh, and that parents may have some opinions about what you're saying (laughs) or doing, um, they're going to, they're going to make life so much more difficult. I found as a, as a young leader that, uh, the, the teachers didn't care as a young leader what I knew. They just wanted to know, do, do you, do you, do you, are you going to support me? Can you get me the resources I need to be an effective educator? Can you help me problem solve when I'm having a challenge? Can you sit with me um, when I'm contemplating that this is not the right profession? Can you give me the attention I deserve and need? That, those are the things that, as I've gotten older, those are the simple, the simple answers to being a more effective person, a more effective leader, a more effective educator. And I think I'd argue right now we need more than ever and with those coming into the profession. Two final questions. One, just kind of falling in line with the show. Uh, we like to talk about bias, not necessarily calling yourself out, but just sharing kind of mm-hmm. your way of checking your own bias. So what is a bias that you have and how do you I was going to say manage it. How do you challenge yourself with it? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. The challenge I have with the, the knowing my own bias is they're not biases if I know that they're there. You know, and so I, I assume uh, that I have many of them. I don't assume to know what they are. And I use my experiences uh, every day uh, to try and check myself. So t- trying to do a lot of mirror work, self-reflection. Um, around why I believe what I believe, using what some call, uh, you know, um, self-reflective thought. <laughs> why do I believe what I believe? Why do I want to do what I want to do? Um, and so I check myself quite often. I will tell you a bias that I, I discovered. And I believed that um, at a young, a young level that unless st- students and parents um, recognized that that I was an educator with professional expertise that I brought with me a degree of knowledge that needed to be respected and appreciated that they weren't going to be able to um, accomplish things because they're not going to recognize my value, right? They're not going to take advantage of what I know or what I have to offer. And so for me, it was a bias of, you know, because I was competent, going back to our original conversation, that, that I did deserve a, a sense of respect and, uh, and appreciation. It wasn't long before, it wasn't long, uh, long ago where I, was, I learned that if you, the minute you think you're somebody, you're nobody. 
And so um, trying to get out of our own way and get out of my own way and say, I'm not doing this work at the CCEE because I'm competent and more knowledgeable than people. That's my bias. I'm doing this work because I'm not competent. I'm not more knowledgeable and I'm willing to learn. And those are, those are tough because they check your confidence at the door a little bit. You know, they check your, your ego, you know, and I see a lot of that. Uh, and so doing a lot of that reflective, like, why, why do I feel the way I feel? What is holding me back? And most often, Heather, it comes down to my own ego getting my own way. Oh, isn't this the truth for all of us? I do believe that we can maintain <laughs> confidence and we can, we can be humble or humble mm-hmm. ourselves. So hopefully it's, it's, it's a tough, tough line to walk, but I do believe it's possible. Um, and you, you might've mm-hmm. kind of given us these words already, but I always ask the guest, what are five words that you connect with personally in this current phase of life? Mm. So I think I did yeah. uh, a few of them, but let me see if I can explain, you know, vul- vulnerability, being vulnerable to uh, being willing to put myself out there, um, a sense of humility, you know, being able to um, recognize when you may, you may, you know, definitely, I always say, you know, the ideas that I have are definitely incomplete, probably wrong, <laughs> you know, so a degree of humility, and you need other people, um, a sense of compassion for the profession and for what our communities and kids are dealing with uh, right now, a sense of ownership, responsibility for what we're trying to create in education, what my charges in this role and what I, um, what we as a team at the CCEE hope to create for the students of California. And lastly, a, a sense of, uh, you know, a, a, a sense of understanding that, m- that my experiences as an educator are not, do not provide me always the correct path for helping others and navigating the world. They provide me an experience and an and I understand that experience, but I also understand it's not the only experience. And so good. Uh, my, my job is to recognize all of those. Yeah. Okay. That's so good. I I just want to say thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I appreciate the work that you're doing. And as you explain kind of the methodology in terms of the collaborative effort and really bringing people into the conversation as opposed and getting away from that siloed era that we were in, maybe still are to a degree. So I appreciate you sharing. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening in. I hope this episode helped you see a new perspective. I believe through conversations just like this, we can all set fire to our ignorance and rise from those ashes together as better humans. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions that we expressed on today's episode, they're our own. We encourage you to do your own research and come to your own fact-based conclusions. Please check the show notes for ways to connect with Matt. If you enjoyed this episode, I would love your feedback. It is very helpful for reach. So head on over to whatever platform you use that allows ratings and drop us a love note. If you haven't already, please be sure to hit subscribe wherever you're listening now so you never miss an episode. Help us expand the dialogue by sharing this show with others. And until next time, don't forget to check your bias and keep the conversation going. Thank mm-hmm. you.